to Calvary Chapel of Columbia, where we're unpacking God's truths one verse at a time. And now here's Pastor Tim with today's message. To Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2, we're three weeks into our seven-week series called Dear Church, where we're considering the seven letters that Jesus uh, dictated to the Apostle John in the book of Revelation, it's seven letters to seven literal churches located in Asia Minor, uh, modern-day Turkey. And uh, we've considered two of the letters already. We considered the letter to the church in Ephesus where Jesus wrote, Dear Church, Love Again. You remember that they had lots of good works, but they were missing a crucial component in their church, and that was love. They were a loveless church. And then we considered last week the church in Smyrna, which was a persecuted church, where Jesus wrote, Dear church, be faithful. In the midst of heavy persecution, this church was, Jesus was prodding to continue to be faithful. They had been faithful thus far, and they, Jesus was prodding them to continue in their faithfulness in the midst of persecution. Today, we're going to consider the letter to the church in Pergamum, where Jesus writes, Dear, le- dear church, repent. Dear church, repent. Stand with me if you would, please. We'll read this, these verses together. Revelation chapter 2, we begin looking at verse 12 where it says, And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, The words of him who was the sharp two-edged sword, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name, and you do not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. Some also you have some, uh, so also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna. And I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Father, we thank you for your word this morning and for the call of repentance. Lord, it is a serious call. We understand that it is a loving call. Because without repentance, without genuine confession and turning away from sin, there can be no salvation. The gospel is powerless to the heart that is repentless. And yet, to those who would turn away from their sin and turn to you, Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, the one who laid down his life, who spilt his blood, for the sin of mankind, by faith confessing in you, Lord, turning away from our sin, confessing you as Lord, we can be saved. Not only saved, Lord, but we can also be sanctified. And we ask this morning, Father, that you would have your way with your church, that you would speak into our lives, that you would help us, God, to see our need to be repentant, to have a heart that would be centered on you, cleansed, Lord, as we even consider the fact that we will partake of communion today, the bread and the cup, that we do it in a worthy manner, that our hearts are clean before you. So we ask, Lord, that your spirit just come now, speak to us, and cause us to respond in whatever way that your spirit would lead us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. Imagine with me for a moment that you have, you're the proud parent of a strikingly beautiful young woman who is uh, virtuous and innocent and she is godly. She's everything that a parent would want her daughter to be, this, this daughter is, and maybe some of you have daughters and you can relate. So this will even mean that much more to you. Suppose she's the Proverbs 31 picture, the incarnate of that description. And she comes to you one day as a young adult, and she says, Mommy, because she's English, Daddy, no, I'm just kidding. But Mommy, Daddy, 
I'm so happy I have met the man of my dreams, right? He's smart, he's handsome, he is uh, charming and witty, he's extremely successful, and, and she goes on and on and on about how she's so happy to have met this man, and she is so in love with this man, and you, you don't know this man yet, and so she sets up a time for you to meet him, and she brings him to the door, you open up the door, and what you see next to your beautiful, virtuous, godly daughter is the biggest scumbag in the world. Now, you're probably thinking, oh my, what do I do here? He's a known swindler and a crook. He's a murderer and a liar. He's a godless man who wants nothing more than to pillage and destroy the character of your beautiful, godly daughter. This guy is a combination of Charles Manson and Al Capone put together. And in spite of your best efforts to convince her otherwise, she decides that she is going to marry this man. What will become of her? What will become of her? Because we know that bad morals corrupt good character. What will become of her? Your beautiful, virtuous, godly daughter will become nothing more than a trick. A vile, disgusting, porno-making, drug-taking, self-exalting libertarian. Why? Because she married herself to a man who was of that character. Welcome to Revelation chapter 2, verses 12 through 17, where Jesus says, my church has married herself to the world. My church has married herself to the world. The name Pergamum, Pergamos in the Greek, literally means, listen, objectional marriage. Interesting. Objectional marriage. Jesus is saying, I object to this marriage. Why? Because although the church is called to be in the world, the church is not called to be of the world, but this church has made herself part of the world, partnered with the world. She has married herself to the world. This was a literal church that existed when Jesus was, you know, dictating to John, and John would physically deliver this letter to this church in Pergamum. They existed. They were this way. But this also points to a very specific period in, in the history of the church. It was the period in time in which Constantine had become ruler of Rome. And if you know anything about church history, you know that Constantine had, had taken the church and he had married the church to the state. Christianity became the national religion for Rome. And it was conversion by the sword. And it was... A, it was, it was completely opposite of how Jesus would desire for his church to be. When we look back on church history, there are many, many things that were done in the name of Jesus that were not of Jesus. And that's something that you have to wrestle with when you, you have conversations with unbelievers who know a little bit about church history. You have to make them understand that just because somebody does something in the name of Jesus doesn't mean that Jesus was okay with it or that he's the one that orchestrated or be the one that actually, you know, commanded or directed or lead, led the person to do these things. There is much in church history that I promise you Jesus is not proud of. Very, very opposite of what he would desire for his church to be. Jesus does not want his church married to the state. In fact, contrary to popular belief, Jesus didn't come to take over this kingdom. He came to usher in a new one. The reason why is because this one is corrupt. Jesus is not about this kingdom. It's about, he's about a kingdom, but it's not this kingdom. It's about his kingdom. And his kingdom is coldly contrary to this kingdom. And yet, Constantine married the two together. You may know the story. It goes something like this. As a young man, Constantine fell to his knees and became a born-again believer uh, by the way of a sign and a voice that he heard. He saw a sign of a burning cross in the sky, and he heard a voice that said, in this sign, conquer. In this sign, conquer. 
And therefore, Constantine would begin to issue all kinds of dictate or mandates for the church as it relates. And that's how we, got, we get to a place where we are praying for people that are dead, where we get to a place where we are elevating man and, and, and praying to saints, and where we get to a place where we're doing all these things. The origin comes from this place, from Constantine. We have many, many rituals in the Catholic Church today that are ungodly and, and are not of the Lord that are from him. Do we know that that was the Lord himself that revealed himself to Constantine in this way, considering that Jesus is in opposition to this kingdom? That he didn't come to con- If Jesus wanted to overtake the kingdom, he would have. Like his disciples and the Jews were anticipating Jesus to take over the Roman kingdom and usher in, you know, and just, just come and act like everything was, you know, normal, and he would just become the ruler. That's not what he came to do. He came to abolish sin and and death by way of the cross so that he could usher in a new kingdom that is undefiled. And so perhaps it wasn't God at all that ushered in this sign and that voice. You do know that Satan can transform himself into an angel of light. The scriptures tell us that. We've seen that done with the angel of macaroni, right? (laughs) Where he gave these two tablets to Joseph Smith, and we have today, we have the Mormon church. I'm not saying Constantine wasn't a Christian. There's a big debate over that, and I'm, I, I don't know. I wasn't there. I'm not a judge. It doesn't matter what I think. But what I do know is that there was much of what he did was not of the Lord, and it was contrary to Scripture, actually. So we can have some grace, though, because we all live in that manner sometimes, don't we? So we have to be careful that we don't begin to cast stones when we're doing the same thing in some way. We have to be careful with that. But but so so this letter that Jesus is writing is to a literal church that existed in John's time, but it also points us to a period in church history where the church and the state became one. It also is pointing to you and I today. And there is an application of this letter that is written to you and I and to every, every person that has ever existed or will ever exist in what we call the church. The church is simply a body of members of the body of Christ. Its people are the church. So this letter is personal to you. And it's a letter that Jesus is writing to tell you beware of the danger of marrying yourself to the world. Be careful that you don't marry yourself to the world because the world will turn you in to that beautiful, virtuous daughter that you had who married the wrong person and she became nothing more than a pawn. And her, her, her virtue was gone. Her character was corrupted. Don't think that you are the one who can stand outside of that rule. Oh, I can handle it. I can manage. See, people just don't have enough self-control. Oh, Really? Let me tell you something. The enemy knows what you trip over, and, he's, and he is consistently putting it in front of you. And if your heart is not centered on Jesus Christ and surrendered to him, if you're not living on your knees at the cross of Christ, you will fall. It's period. You will. You do not have the power in your own strength to be able to resist the temptations that the devil can put before you. The devil doesn't make you do it. Don't misunderstand. He just puts the right carrot before you, and he knows what you struggle with. You ever notice that? He's not dangling things in front of you that you don't struggle with. He's like, hey, I don't like to take drugs, so he doesn't dangle drugs before you. He dangles things in front of you that you care about that will satisfy you temporarily for a moment. He knows what you struggle with. And if you marry yourself to the world, those things will become a part of your life. And that's what Jesus wants us to understand. This church, although not everyone was swayed into that licentiousness, the entire church is called to repentance. And you'll see why in a moment. Jesus writes, dear church, repent. And he begins as he does with every letter with a simple introduction and then a very specific description about himself relating to this situation that's going on in this church. In this particular case, Jesus says unto the angel of the church of Pergamum, write, the words of him who was the sharp, two-edged sword. Again, the, the word angel there can be translated messenger, most probably 
a letter to the pastor or the overseer of the church in Pergamum. And Jesus describes himself in a very specific way in, 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 as it relates to what this church was dealing with, how they were falling. He calls himself the one who has the sharp two-edged sword. Now, this has a, a dual meaning here. First and foremost, the two-edged sword is always a reference to the Bible. How do we know? Because the Bible says so. <laughs> Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and marrow, and a discern our thoughts and the intents of the heart. Listen, the word of God is a sword. It's alive and active. You ever notice how, uh, you know, if you, let me, let me put this preface on it. If you read the Bible with a desire to know what God thinks, you will hear from him. He will speak directly into your life. But I think it's, it's with the caveat of seeking, right? Because the Bible says, if you seek me, you'll find me. If you seek me with all your heart. Sometimes we read the Bible, we don't really care what God thinks. We're just reading the Bible. And you wonder why he's not speaking. Because you're not seeking. Because, you know, it would be like Jesus, uh, you know, giving a parable and he didn't give the explanation because people really didn't care. They didn't really didn't want to know. He gave the explanation to who? Those who came to him. Those who wanted to wrestle with the truth. Those who were thinking, like, what does he mean by that? How does that apply to my life? If you read the Bible like that, you will see that it's alive and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. It will meet you where you are. It speaks directly into your life. I'm not saying that's the only time it can happen, but I would say, you know, a rule of thumb in your daily Bible reading should be this. Lord, speak to my heart. I want to seek you. I want to know you. I want to know what you think about my life, about the things that are going through, you know, and, and he will speak to you. But notice that the word of God is able to cut. It's able to cut right through the facade of what's going on in our hearts, you know, this, this false life, this plastic people kind of thing that we're doing in this culture today where we have our Facebook and our Instagram. We're only posting the good stuff, though. Oh, look at here I am here and here I am there. And that's not even real. That's like five minutes of your life. But we're all trying to be that, so we have to rush on to that and be careful. Be careful. The Word of God cuts right through all of that fakeness. And it speaks directly to us. And it's powerful. Jesus wants you to know that the Word of God is a two-edged. It has the capacity to heal, but it also has the capacity to hurt. It has the capacity to... Um, to console, but it also has the capacity to condemn. The Word of God is powerful. It is sharp. And it tells us really what's going on in our heart. It does not hold back. You ever notice that? Your friends may tell you what you want to hear. The Word of God will tell you what's really going on. It's a great thing to read if you want to be real. It's the way that we deal with compromise in our lives. You know that. We read the Word of God. The psalmist wrote in Psalm 119.11, uh, you know, he said, I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. How do we battle compromise with the Word of God? The Holy Spirit comp compounded with the Word of God together creates this, this protection for us, this strong tower that we run to, we hide in, and it keeps us from temptation. We run to the Word of God, and the Word of God protects us from the corruption of this world. Listen, the church in Pergamum was failing in this. They were not living, uh, you know, according to the Word of God. You'll see in a moment, you may have already read it earlier, we did read it earlier, that they were struggling with false teaching. There were those in the body here in Pergamum that had given themselves over to the teaching of Balaam, to the teaching of the Nicolaitans, they were following a false word. That's why, you have to, that's why we need to be students of the word so that we know and we can discern what is real and what is not real so that we understand when, when uh, you know, a, a burning cross appears in the sky and a voice comes that we know whether that's God or not. We have to understand when a doctrine sweeps through the church, is that of the Lord or not of the Lord? Are we tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine? How do we know? Student of the word of God. It's not that God hasn't revealed the truth. 
it's, it's really the question is, have we invested ourselves in the truth to know it so that we can keep ourselves from these things? It's a two-edged sword. It's the first picture. Secondly, this church was also struggling with, uh, with this concept of true judgment and authority. The one who holds the sword, this is a picture of the one who judges. Apparently, in, uh, the proconsul of Pergamum had been granted some rare power. It wasn't like everybody had the capacity to do this, but this particular proconsul had the ability to uh, you know, execute. He had what was called the right of the sword. He could, he could execute people. He could say, you die, you die. Even though they were over Roman rule, the proconsulate that, was sit, that sat in the seat there in Pergamum had the capacity for capital punishment. He could, he could dictate whether you lived or died. It's been said that he was even at some, some games uh, during, you know, when they were having like the Olympic game kind of things. And people were cheering against the man that he was cheering for and he had them executed. There was a misconception in this church about true authority, about true judgment. Jesus says, I'm the one that holds the sword. Although this proconsulate can, can uh, wield this sword of execution upon your temporary life, I'm the one that can wield it over your eternal life. You know, let's, let's put the picture correct here. Eternity versus temporary. Jesus' sword is the only sword that matters, folks. It does not matter what sword is wielded in this temporary life. The only sword that matters, the only sword that you will be judged by that will matter is the one that has to do with eternity, the one that Jesus holds. And he holds it. And he wants this church to understand that he is the, the one that has been given all authority. He has been given all judgment. He is the one that we need to be worried about. Jesus said it himself. He said, listen, don't worry about the person who can kill your body but cannot kill your soul. Fear the one who can kill your soul. That is Jesus. He's the one that wields that sword. He's telling this church that they have to be careful about fearing the wrong power. Fearing the wrong power. The fear of man. It's a snare, the Bible says, and we know that. Listen, why does God care so much about this particular thing, about this about us understanding true, who, what true, true authority is and all. Because we live in a culture, and we live in that culture today, that is trying to uh, wield its judgment over the church and tell us what we can say and what we can't say. Telling us what is hate speech and what is love. And in fact, they're trying to harness the word of God in a way that will cripple Christians so that they cannot speak the truth in love. And so this is, a, this is a real issue for us today. We have to understand, at the end of the day, who we answer to. Although Romans chapter 13 or 13 to 14 tells us that we're called to submit to government authorities, we have to understand that that is only to the degree that it doesn't contradict the Word of God. God has the final say, folks. doesn't mean that we go out and we're obnoxious with the truth. But it does mean that we do not cower back from sharing the truth. God has given us the words of life. We should take that seriously. And we should love people enough to share the truth. But listen, God is not okay with you just doing whatever you want. There are not multiple ways to heaven. There's one way. And his name is Jesus. Not because I want to make it narrow. It's because he made it narrow. Not because that's the way I want it to be. It's because that's the way he wanted it to be. I'm not the Savior. I'm not the creator of the world. I'm not the one that gets to dictate how God saves us. I have to just tell other people about it. So we have, to, we have to also understand who is the one that truly holds the sword. And it is none other than Jesus. This church was fearing the wrong person. By way of background, a little bit of information about Pergamum. It was located some hundred miles northeast of Ephesus. It was 15 miles inland from the Aegean Sea. It was seated upon an acropolis, which, which seated itself about 1,000 feet above the plain below. It was a sophisticated uh, center of Greek culture and education. It had one of the largest libraries in the known world at that time. It contained 200,000 volumes of scrolls and such, second only to the famous library in Alexandria, Egypt. 
The ethics of the city are dictated to us by Jesus to John in verse 13. He says this. He says, this is the place where Satan's throne is. This is where Satan himself sits upon the throne. He is the ruler of this city. Could you imagine? Hey, where do you live where Satan's throne is? You know, you're, you're like, whoa, man, that's crazy. That's pretty heavy. Jesus is telling these believers that they are, the ethics of the city are mandated by the one sitting on the throne of that city. Is that not the case? Is there not legislation that comes down that, that creates an ethic in the world, a, mor- a moral compass? It shouldn't, but it does. The ethics of this city were, were that of Satan. It, it, it hosted four main temples for the worship of Greek gods. Pergamum was said to be the birthplace of Zeus. And in fact, many say that the throne that they're speaking about is Zeus's throne that would sit upon this Acropolis. The biggest, when you would approach Pergamum, what you would see upon that Acropolis, you know, as you would look up, is you would see this gigantic throne, which was Zeus's temple. And you would go and worship Zeus. Some say that that's why uh, Jesus depicted it as Satan's throne. There were also temples known to the Greek god, goddess Athena and to Dionysius and to this Greek god called uh, Asclepius. Asclepius was the chief god of healing. If you, uh, it's, if you recall the symbol of, you know, Asclepius had a staff that had a snake wrapped around it, that the symbol of the, medi- you know, the me- medical symbol or whatnot, uh, that was the, 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 the throne. He also sat on the throne. And interesting enough, people that wanted healing, people came from all over the world to be healed by this Greek god. And so they would come and they would, they would sleep in this temple. This temple was filled with all kinds of poisonous, uh, uh, non-poisonous snakes. Not poisonous ones. If they bit you, you'd die. But they were non-poisonous snakes. And the hope was this. If you were sick, you would lay in this temple and you would hope that one of those slithering creatures would crawl upon you and you would be healed. <laughs> not fun. I, don't th- I think I would go without being healed. Who knows? It obviously probably didn't even work. But listen, it's a picture, isn't it? The one who is the serpent. It's, perhaps this is why Jesus called it the, the, the place where Satan's throne is. Listen, this culture was full of idolatry. Not only did they worship the Greek gods, but they also uh, built the temple for emperor worship where they also worshipped Caesars. We talked about it last week in Smyrna, that they were required by the Romans to declare that Caesar is Lord. And they were called to offer some incense upon the the altar there, and and they would be given a certificate that would tell them, okay, you've you've done your duty to Rome, you've worshipped the emperor, all is good. But there's one problem. There is only one Lord, and his name is Jesus. It is not Caesar. So the church was in a difficult predicament here, in Pergamum. And they had allowed the culture to dictate to them the worship of their true God. They had allowed the culture into uh, the, the church. Interesting enough, though, Jesus does commend them for a few things. Look at verse 13. I know where you dwell. He understands that they dwell in the the place where Satan's throne is. He understands the difficulty of where they are. Don't think that Jesus doesn't understand what you're going through or what you're facing. He does know, and he tells you now, I know. But here's the thing. Your circumstances are matched with a power and with a grace from our God that will enable you to get get through it. He will help you. You just keep your eyes on him. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet... You hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. Although this was a difficult place for Christians to live, and it was satanic in influence, this church had not denounced the name of Jesus, nor had they denied their faith. In other words, they had allowed the culture in, but they were still worshiping Jesus. Now, how does that look a lot like the church, the the, the, the main church today. There are many, many churches who have allowed the culture in where we have allowed certain things to happen. We'll talk about it in a second. But they're still doing things in the name. They have not necessarily denied the name of Jesus or, or their faith. But Jesus has a call to every church like that. 
and it is to repent. He tells, uh, he, he, he promised Peter and the disciples that he would build his church upon the rock and that the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Will it be incredibly difficult in the culture, in every culture in which the church lives? Yes, it will be. But the gates of hell shall not prevail against his church. That doesn't mean every church will be successful. It means that God will always have a remnant in every era, in every situation, just like he did with the Israelites. He will do with his church. It doesn't matter if 95% of the church goes to the right. Jesus will make sure there's a remnant to stand for the true church, to stand for, for, for true believers. Although the church was corrupt, they were holding fast the name Jesus. It Literally, to hold fast means to hold on to to seize with your hands. These believers were not going to release the name of Jesus. They were holding on to it. They knew that there was power in the name of Jesus. They also were unwilling to deny their faith. They would not denounce Jesus nor turn from him. They would not declare Caesar as Lord. Many of them would not do that. Yet they were compromised. They were, uh, they were still compromised. We see that even in the midst of that, they were being faithful to the Lord in that way. And, and in fact, it's illustrated to us by the martyr Antipas, who, according to tradition, because he would not, he would not denounce Christ and worship Caesar as Lord, was roasted in a bowl by the hand of Domitian, and he was killed. He was the martyr. He was the martyr that Jesus called out of this church to be a representation of what this church should be willing to do at all cost, give up their life even, to, to, to st stand fast to the faith. I wonder what Christ would say about us. I wonder what he would say about us in our culture. Are we holding fast to the name of Jesus? Are we denying our faith in some way? Do you know that by remaining silent is even a way to deny your faith? Not verbally, you're not denouncing Christ, but it is a denial of who he is. Abraham Lincoln said it's cowards remain silent in the midst of, diff in the midst of wrong doing. Listen, do not cower. Do not shrink back in the midst of this culture that is trying to silence us. And I understand that, listen, there is a, there's a time and a place and we have to be, uh, you know, Wise as a serpent and gentle as a dove. And we have to speak the truth in love. But we cannot fall into this place of saying, well, who am I to say something, you know? And every time you do say something, you will hear this from unbelievers. Who are you to judge me? That's why we don't, we don't speak to people about our opinions about, of things. Because who are we to say something to somebody about our opinions? What we do speak on behalf of is the truth. We use scripture. We use the word of God. So there are many, many things in our culture that are going on that, um, you know, maybe they're preference issues, and, and those are not things that we need to address. Those are not things that we need to speak on behalf of. It's, maybe it's opinional. You know, who cares what you think and who cares what I think? What we care about is what Jesus thinks. What we care about is what his word says, and we want to be steadfast to his word. And when there are things that are denying the word, of God, we need to stand up as a church and say, hey, this is wrong. You know, we don't have to become, you know, we don't have to become sign holders and picketers and, you know, become violent over these things. No, but we do when God allows the opportunity for us to speak, we need to speak. He, he puts you in that position for that reason. You know that? Not just so you were in the know of what's going on. Like he, he wants you to say something. That's why he planted you there. And maybe it's in your workplace where, you know, there's some things going on and people are stealing time from their boss and, you know, and all that kind of stuff. Maybe God put you in, and you're convicted in your heart over that. You're saying, man, I know that I need to say something, but I'm just fearful to say it because, because why? They're stealing. Listen, care more about what God thinks than what man thinks. And Lord, help me with that, honestly. Help me with that. That is, that is an attitude that comes through prayer, folks. It's not something that you just naturally come after. I'm going to be confrontational today. Well, some of you do, but let's not talk about it. We're not going to talk about that. We're going to, but so, you know, we need to be, we need to confront sin. And Jesus will say that in a second here.
He, he commends these guys for standing firm in their faith. But he also, at the same token, he has a few complaints against them. Verse 14, but I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Notice, the issues that Jesus has here are directly related to doctrine. They're directly related to teaching. He's saying you're following. You have some, not all. Some are following these false teachings, but all are called to repentance. Why? Because everybody's letting it happen. There's no addressing of the issue in the body. You know, and, and we live in a culture, to be honest, that doesn't want to, they don't, they, they don't want to hear the words church discipline. You know, if you come and address me on my sin, I'll just go somewhere else. You know, it's easy for me to just skate the church. There's 113 churches in Columbia. I don't have to go to this one. You address me on my sin, I'll just go somewhere else. Go for it. Because here's the thing is, we can't be a church that does not address sin. I mean, Jesus himself would, 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 would call his church to address sin. Now, we don't sniff out sin, but we do address it. We don't look for controversy. We don't look for being confrontational. But when it, when it rears its head, we, even in the midst of fear, step in and say, hold on a second, I I'm an ambassador of Jesus Christ, and I represent him, and I need to stand for the faith. Now, these, the, the church at large was not doing that in Pergamum. They were allowing these teachings, these false teachings to go on. The teaching of Balaam. You know the story, Numbers chapter 23 through chapter 25, where Balak was afraid of Moses and the gang coming out of Egypt, and he saw this massive army, and they were leveling people. Who was leveling them? The Lord was. But he, they saw what was happening. They became fearful, and so they said, man, we got to do something. We have to address this situation. So they hired this hireling uh, called Balaam, who's a prophet of God. And they said, hey, Balaam, why don't you come over here and why don't you curse these people for me? And so Balaam, you know the whole struggle. He wants the money, but God's telling him he shouldn't go, so he keeps pleading with the Lord. And God will let you do what you want eventually. You know that? Like he'll let you, admit, he'll let you take the step. So he lets Balaam go with Balak and all, and he says, but you only speak the words that I tell you to speak. God had a plan in this, and it's interesting because uh, – they, they have three altars built, and at every, every altar, Balak asks Balaam to curse the people of Israel, and the only thing that come out, can come out of his mouth is a blessing. He can only bless, I mean, the words of the Lord just pour out a blessing upon these people, and, and Balak's upset. He's like, why are you doing this? I want you to curse these people, and he did it three times, and then finally, after the third time, he's just frustrated as all get out. And, a, and, and, and Balaam sees that, and he's afraid he's not going to get paid. So what he does is he doesn't curse the Israelites, but he does let Balak in on a little secret. And in fact, Numbers chapter 31 verse 16 tells us that he, he by the advice of Balaam, Balak understood how to conquer the Israelites. All you got to do is cause them to bow to another god. And their God will, will, will judge themselves. You don't even have to worry about it. And so what does Balak do? He sends these beautiful Moabite women down into the culture. They, 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 as the word says, they sacrifice animals to their gods and they worship their gods through sexual acts. That's what was happening in Pergamum. You see, the teaching of Balaam was, was alive and well in, in this church, in this culture, and it is today as well. The people were going out and they were enjoying themselves in these pagan feasts and they, and they were worshiping these false gods and all. And then they were coming to church on Sunday, raising their hands to Jesus, singing, here I am to worship. You know, they were, they were, they were you know, and, and the culture knew it. Everybody in church knew it. But nobody said a word. They were following this false doctrine of, of Balaam. In, fa it, uh, in fact, it, it tells us that when they did that, in Numbers chapter 25, verses 1 through 5, while Israel lived in Shittim, the people began to whore with the daughters of Moab. These invited the people to, the, to sacrifice their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel yoked herself to Baal of Peor, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And the Lord said to Moses, Take all the chiefs of the people and hang them in the sun before the Lord, that the fierce anger of the Lord may turn away from Israel. And Moses said to the judges of Israel, Each of you kill those of his men 
who have yoked themselves to Baal of Peor. And yet, in Pergamum, they were letting it happen. In Pergamum, they were letting it happen. And I would say to a great degree that's happening today. There was much sexual immorality coupled with idolatry here in this church. Likewise, there were some in Pergamum who were also uh, following after the teaching of the Nicolaitans. They were primarily, uh, you know, teaching, again, sexual immorality, licentious living, pagan worship through orgies and all kinds of sexual sin and these kinds of things. It's idolatry coupled with sexual immorality. That is the point. This is the culture of Pergamum, and it's the culture of, unfortunately, the church in Pergamum. All of that has made its way into the church, and I'm afraid that much of that has made its way into the church today. How did it come? How did it come? Through false teaching. It came through false teaching. Listen, there are, there are people standing in pulpits today that, that will teach from a pulpit that masturbation is not a sin. You know, self-sex self is not a sin. It's okay to do these kind of things. They will also teach homosexuality is not a sin. In fact, there are homosexual pastors that will stand in pulpits and, and say these things. There are all kinds, you know, sex before marriage. You know, oh, that's an antiquated book. I mean, it doesn't ever really say that in there. You know, so, you know, it couldn't really mean that. Listen, God was so serious about sin that 24,000 people died in Numbers chapter 25 because of it. 24,000 people died out of the children of Israel because God was so serious about dealing with sin in his body. And we have people standing in pulpits that are saying, hey, it's okay to do this and it's okay to do that when it's contrary to the word of God? The point is this. Listen, you better be careful who you're following. You better be careful who you're listening to. You better know the word of God. We live in a culture that no longer believes that the word of God I, I could say that every culture is like that, but, but we live in our culture today in a world that is, is raping the word, that is taking certain things out of the word that we don't like, and we are not standing true to the foundation of the word of God. And so your main goal in life ought to be, I have to know his word. That should be the most important thing in your life. I have to know his word. Why? Because I have a culture that's coming against me telling me that, that I can do this and that. And if I cannot defend myself, I will fall. Am I supposed to be an apologetic? No, you don't have to go to that extent. But you should know what you believe. Because you know what? I, I, I encounter people all the time that, you know, are blindly following certain things and they cannot defend what they believe. You know, let that not be you. Let that not be you because, listen... Jesus opens up a window for you to share your faith is because you should have been prepared to do it. He gives you the opportunity. He provides the information. All we have to do is learn. And, and, and what happens is oftentimes is we become, uh, you know, we, we get into this rut and we become callous to the word and we, we, we don't necessarily uh, take it seriously and then we get in a conversation and we get swayed because we don't know the word. Teach your kids the Bible. You know, study the Bible for yourself. Be Bereans. Don't allow the culture to tell you what's acceptable. The only voice I want to hear is Jesus. The only, and listen, you better check everything I say. You better get in the word yourself and check everything I say. Be careful who you're following. In, a, in the day and age of, of being able to go on YouTube and listen to any podcast I want, be careful who you're following. Listen, this church was, was full of kind of the same kind of errors that are going on in our church today. But listen, there is a remedy, and Jesus has a command that he tells this church, and it is found in verse 16. Therefore, repent. I have this against you. Aren't you glad that Jesus says, I have this against you? Now I'm going to come after you? Aren't you glad that he says he provides a remedy for us? That he, he says, listen, I'm going to give you an opportunity to do something about your situation. Why can he provide an opportunity for us? Because he already came to pay the price. Like the opportunity is literally, the ball is in your court. Jesus said, I've already hung on the cross. I've already paid the price for sin. I've already bled and I died and I rose again from the dead. So the opportunity exists for you. Here's the command. 
Therefore, repent. Repent. We don't like that word in this culture. They didn't like that word in that culture. People do not want to turn away from their sin. That's why they have a problem with that word. I have a buddy that comes to church here. His name's Greg Lake. And you know what? He has, he, first couple times he showed up, he's wearing this shirt, this shirt that just says, repent. And I was like, yeah, that's going to get you in trouble, man. People are going to look at you like, dude, what's your problem, man? People are going to want to fight you. Why? Because they don't, they don't want to be confronted. People don't want to turn away from their sin. Some people do. But the culture does not. Majority of people will, will tell you you're judging them if you tell them anything about what they're doing is wrong. And I will say that there are many, many Christians who do judge people. So that isn't unwarranted. But what I am saying is that just because you speak the truth isn't judgment. You know, I think it's incredibly unloving to know something about, uh, you know, to know that somebody is in a situation that is contrary to God's word and not to say something to them. Don't, don't you think that's unloving? Or is it loving to just sit, just sit back and act like it's not happening? And let their lives be destroyed. Because, you know, sin does destroy. Like, there's nothing good that can come out of sin. It's like, man, I'm so glad you're in that adulterous relationship. That is going to be so good for you down the road. I mean, your kids are going to be, they can't wait till your parents split up. Because we'll get two Christmases. Oh, right, yeah, they're going to really love that. You know what I'm saying? Isn't it incredibly unloving for me to not say something to somebody if I know what's going on in their life? Not only are we called to address sin, Jesus says repent, it means we're called to address our own sin in our lives, that we need to confess that. Lord, this is where I'm failing you. We need to turn away from it. We need to turn away from it. Repentance is a two-step process. It's confession of sin and turning away. And it can happen, you know, all at the same time or whatever. I shouldn't say it's a two-step process. There's two things involved in it, confession and turning away. It literally means to turn and go the exact opposite direction you're going. To change one's mind. That's what the word repentance means. And, you know, repentance becomes the vehicle for forgiveness. Repentance becomes the vehicle for forgiveness unto salvation. Repentance is not the means of salvation. Jesus Christ is the means of salvation. Don't get this mixed up. Repentance is a work. It's not, I can't do anything to be saved. What I can do is confess my sin to Jesus and turn away from it. That's repentance. That's a vehicle that brings me to the means who is Jesus Christ who hung on the cross and who covers me with his blood. That is the means of salvation. But listen, not only is repentance a vehicle to deliver us unto salvation, but it is also a vehicle for sanctification. It also allows us the opportunity to become more like Jesus because here's the thing is sin separates you. Positionally, you're justified, you're going to heaven. That means you can't unsave somebody who's saved because the justification process has happened, right? The blood of Christ covers our sin. But, but here's what happens, and because we all sin, and all of you do, if you're saying you don't sin, you're a liar, John says. But because we all sin... Repentance should be a continual act in the, in the life of a believer. And here's why. Because it interrupts your fellowship with God. Here's what John said in 1 John chapter 1, verses 6 through 10. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, he is in the light. We have fellowship with, the one, with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. We confess our sins. He is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We say we have not sinned. We make him a liar, and his word is not in us. When you sin as a believer, you don't lose your salvation, but you do break your fellowship with God. You do break your fellowship with God. And he wants to be reconciled to people. So he provides a vehicle for us to be reconciled, and that's called repentance through the cross of Jesus Christ. It's turning to Jesus and putting all your faith and hope in him and turning away from your sin and turning to him. That's, that's what it means. And we should be pretty good at that, honestly. It should be something, I mean, it's sad to say, but we should be pretty good at it. Something that we sh- should come natural to us because we sin, right? Sinners sin, and although we are redeemed 
from a positional standpoint, practically on the horizontal level, we are still working that out. And so as we sin, and as those thoughts come into our minds and settle in our hearts, we need to get rid of those things, and we need to turn those things over. That's why we should constantly be living on our knees, folks. We should be people that are found bowing low at the cross. Because I need Jesus today as much as I did, uh, you know, before I was redeemed. I need him desperately today. To act like you don't need Jesus, to act like you don't need to repent is to be blind to your own sin. And so what I would say and what, what Jesus is saying here in this act of repentance is it requires examination. You have to look at your own heart. You have to consider, Lord, what's going on with me? Am I really walking with you? If I'm not walking with you, Lord, help me to get centered on you. Let me turn my heart back to you. And I'm telling you that this letter right here, all of them are relevant, but to me, this one right here is so relevant to the church today. It's so relevant to the church because we have, we have taken grace to a, to a place where it does not belong, where we have taken grace to a place where we just say, hey, I can do whatever I want. God's not, I'm going to heaven. It doesn't matter, you know. The, the blood of Christ, you know, covers me and all this kind of stuff. I can do what I want. The heart that says that is not a redeemed heart. I'm sorry to say that. But, but you need to know that. You need to understand that. Because if you have no desire for God, you have no desire to live in, in, in a manner that would please him, but you think you're going to heaven, you're deceiving yourself. And that's the reality. And unfortunately, we live in a culture today in this particular area called the Bible Belt where you have to be very upfront about that because everybody thinks they're saved. Well, you know, my grandpa was a, was a preacher, you know, so I'm saved. My whole family's saved. I'm like, really? When did you come to Christ? What do you mean? Oh, you're saved because you're, oh, I see, your grandpa's the pastor. That's why you're saved. I got it. I thought Jesus was the only Savior. I don't, maybe I missed that. But um, un honestly, we live in a culture like that, folks. And uh, it's been often said that you have to get people unsaved to get them saved. And, 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 and he here's what I'm saying. We want to do that lovingly. You, you don't want to, you know, hammer people, but at the same token, they need to understand that without repentance, without a genuine, without a point in time in which they have bowed their knee and turned away from their sin and confessed it to the Lord and turned to Him, there can be no forgiveness. There can be no forgiveness. Positionally, if you're a believer here today, you're forgiven. God sees you as He sees His Son. Practically speaking, you're breaking fellowship with God every time you, every time you sin, and you need to confess that and move on. You don't have to get resaved. But you do have to get back in fellowship with the Lord. You do have to get back in communion with him. And that's why Paul said in 1 Corinthians 11, when you take communion, make sure you do it in a worthy manner. Don't come here flippantly and just pound down the, the take the bread and take the juice like it's no big deal. Consider what you're doing. Like remember that Jesus Christ gave his life for you. And, and as we remember that, that should produce a lifestyle that looks similar to Jesus's. Like we should, we should, be walking like he walked. Man, Lord, you were so sacrificial in my life. Let me be sacrificial to you. Romans chapter 12, do not be conformed to this world. Do not be pressed into the mold of the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Be like Jesus, folks. How do you do that? Through repentance. Through repentance. And it's not just the act in which you are saved, but a continual repentance in the, in the sanctified believer's life. He moves on here, and he tells us what the reality is for those who will do that. Verse 17, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone and a name written uh, on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. There are two promises that Jesus gives here. To the one who conquers... That is to the one who trusts in Jesus Christ, who obeys his word and, is, and, and turns away from their sin and, and turns to him, who repents. To that one, firstly, Jesus says, I will give you some hidden manna. You know what manna is, right? It's called bread from heaven. Remember when the children of Israel were coming out of Egypt and they're hungry and they're grumbling and they're like, dude, what? God brought us out here to die. I can't believe that he's doing this to us. You know, it doesn't provide any food or anything. And then God allows manna uh, to come down from heaven and to, to be laid upon the ground and they go out and they collect it in the morning and it's this sweet bread like a honey, honey substance kind of thing where, it, you know, I don't know, it, maybe it's like a honeycomb or something. I don't know what it is, but it, 
It's sweet to the taste, and it's satisfying to the soul. It is nourishment to these people. God provided manna for his people when they needed it. It's been said that the word of God is manna. It nourishes us. It provides what we need. It satisfies. But do you know that Jesus, in John chapter 6, he said that manna that came down from heaven was a picture of me. He said, I am the bread of life. I am the bread from heaven. And he pointed to himself. Why? Because he wants to understand if you want nourishment, if you want satisfaction, you need to eat of me. And remember, at that point in time, he, he, he said, if, anybody, if anybody's unwilling to eat my flesh and drink my blood, they can have no part with me. And his disciples started going away one at a time before there was no crowd left. Listen, Jesus, Jesus had times where, where people were, didn't like what he said and they left. In fact, at the cross, the only people that were there are his disciples and his mom. The only people that showed up. Everybody else was saying, crucify him. That's how fickle the crowd is. So you want to follow those people? I don't. I want to follow Jesus. But, but he tells his disciples, if you don't eat my flesh and drink my blood, you can have no part with me. What was he saying, man? You know, literally, no. It was symbolic. The idea was that you confess your sin, that you turn to him, that he is the only way, that you look to Jesus. He becomes your nourishment and your satisfaction. He turns to his disciples. You know what he says? We're trying to keep people. That's how we do, church. Jesus says, you guys want to go too? Hey, I'll preach this thing down to a manable size, he says. If it, I want real, real people to follow because it's going to be a treacherous journey. And if you're not real, you'll never survive. You guys want to go too? Go for it. Do it. And Peter <laughs> said something amazing. Every once in a while, that guy, you know, if there's hope, there's hope for you. Just put it to you that way. If Peter can say something brilliant, so can you. He said this. Where else can we go, Lord? You have the words of life. Where else can we go? Nowhere else can we go, Lord. He's the bread of life. He's the manna from heaven. It's a symbolic. It's a picture of nourishment and satisfaction that he will give to the one who repents, to turns away. Because you, you understand that when you do that, there'll be a price to pay, right? You're turning from the culture. You're turning from the things that are going on in the world. So there's some special manna that he will give to those who do this. He also says, I will give you a white stone with a, with a unique name written on it that only you know. He'll give you a nickname. kind of think you're cool when you get a nickname, don't you? Except for it's a bad one. Then you're like, oh, man, why did I get that nickname? Jesus said he's going to give those who repent in this culture, which we live in today, by the way, a stone with a name written on it. It's a nickname for you. This is interesting because in, this, in the culture of Pergamum, when somebody would win some kind of an Olympic game or whatnot, the emperor would give them a white stone, and that stone would have their name inscribed on it, and that stone would become a ticket for them to get into this special banquet that he would have for them. And so... It, it possibly very well could be that Jesus has a special banquet that he will give for those who r repent and who follow this, that he will give them that white stone, which becomes the ticket for their admittance to this ceremony. Here's what I know, is that he will reward those who are faithful to him and those who follow his footsteps, who, tell him, who do what he calls them to do, who walk in his commands. There is what is called a believer's judgment. It's not really a judgment. It's more of, a, more of an award ceremony where the Lord will look at your deeds that you've done from the time that you came, became a Christian to the time that you breathed your last breath. And he will take those deeds and he will run them through a, a fire. And out of that fire... Anything that was done that was of you as wood, hay, and stubble, it will burn up. But anything that was done for his glory and honor that you didn't take the credit for will survive that fire, and those will be the, crown, the jewels that will be put into your crown. There is a reward. I mean, don't you think heaven is enough? And, and to me, the, the dichotomy is this, that Jesus, who created the works that I'm supposed to walk in, gives me the power to walk in those works, 
then credits me for it? I get the jewels in my crown? But remember what will happen. Every crown will be tossed at the feet of Jesus. Why? Because he's the one that's done it. He's the one that's done it. Jesus exhorts this church, he who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Listen, this morning, the Spirit is speaking. He's here this morning. He's speaking to our hearts, and he knows. Siri just picked up on that. And, anyway. Uh, but he's here. He's speaking. He wants his people to respond. As we were in worship, I, I, I was reminded of the scripture in 2 Chronicles 7.14, which says, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. The call that Jesus has for the church of Pergamum is the same call that he has for you today. It's repentance, to repent. And maybe you haven't been doing that lately. Maybe you're not necessarily partaking in the culture and you're embracing everything that's happening, but maybe you're like some in that church that are saying nothing about it and just allowing it to happen. And, and I'm not saying that you need to get on Facebook and let everybody know how you feel about it. What I'm saying is, is that God puts you in a respective circle of people. He planted you there. He planted you there just as much as we send ambassadors to different countries to represent our country. He sent you there to represent him. Right? And perhaps you're standing in the, the circle of people and there's things going on there that he's convicting your heart over that you're doing nothing about. That he's convicting you to do something about. You need to repent today. You need to turn away from your fear of man and turn to the Lord. Confess your sin and turn to him. Maybe you're stuck in sin in some way, shape, or form. You, you, are, you are battling something that is just habitual in your life. It keeps coming over and over and over again. And you're just like, you know, you, you feel like you're powerless to do it. Well, let me tell you something. Just as much as I said this earlier, just as much as, um, you know, the gospel is powerless to those who won't repent to, to receive salvation, so too is the gospel powerless to the believer who doesn't deal with their sin and continues to, to let it sit and doesn't, doesn't uh, get cleansed from those things. Sin, it will hinder you, folks. It'll weigh you down. It will keep you in prison. So, so here's the thing. Jesus gave the remedy. It's called repentance. That's the call to us. And he says, he who has the ear to hear, let him hear what the, church, what the Spirit says to the church. So hear what he says today, amen? Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you for just your goodness in our lives, God, and for being so upfront with us, Lord, that you would speak a word of, you know, rebuke, chastisement, in love, but also in all seriousness, Lord. You care so much about your church that you would write a letter to a physical, literal church and deliver it by your, the Apostle John that would also speak into a, 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 a specific time in church history that would address a situation that happened where the church and the state were married. And then you would speak directly into our lives some 1,700 years later And you would say, hey, are you married to the, to the world today? Have you allowed the world to become your spouse? And it's a letter of conviction to us, Lord. But you provide the, the means in which the vehicle for us to become right, and it's through repentance. You paid the price. Your blood was shed. Your body was broken so that we could be forgiven. And all we have to do is turn to you today. 
And so we thank you for that, Lord. I pray first, Lord, for anybody here that's not a believer, that has not accepted Christ as Savior, that you help them today to turn from their sin, to repent unto salvation. That means that they acknowledge their sinfulness, Lord, that they have lived a life apart from you, but you're calling them into reconciliation this morning, into right relationship, and it's through the blood of Jesus that you do that. And it would be a prayer very similar to this. Father, I come in Jesus' name. I confess myself a sinner, that I have missed the mark. I have not lived according to your word. And I want to turn away from my sin today. This lifestyle that I lived, I don't want to live anymore. I want to live in, in newness of life. And so I confess Jesus as my Lord and my Savior, believing that he died for me, that he rose again from the dead for me so that I could be saved. And so make me a Christian today. And it's a simple prayer like that that would be a prayer of repentance unto salvation. And yet, Lord, for those here today that are believers but are stuck in sin or still sinning and haven't confessed their sin today, Lord, our prayer is that you would cleanse our hearts, that you would forgive our sin, that you would help us to turn to you today, recognizing, Lord, that you paid the price so that we could be not only free, but so that we could be in fellowship with you. And so, Lord, we want to just take a few minutes at the end of this service even now to, to, to just Examine our hearts before we partake in communion. That you would forgive us, Lord. You would cleanse us of our sin. You would turn, help us to turn over a new leaf today, Father. We thank you for this letter. We thank you for what it means for us. And we ask you now by your spirit to move mightily in this place. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. You can hear more of Pastor Tim's studies through the Word of God on our website, www.calvaryofcolumbia.org. Thanks again for listening, and we hope you'll join us again as we continue to study God's Word.